independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, which does not take corporate advertisers, and we really hope to keep it this way, we do need your help to keep the show alive. And if every listener chipped in just a little bit a month, we would meet our fundraising goal in no time. So join us today at greendreamer.com support. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to sign up to our newsletter at greendreamer.com to receive the highlights and resources from each episode. You know, I think we all have a vision for a better food system, for a more sustainable food system. I guess what a grown culture believes is that the only way to do that is to address power. Is that the our relationship to the environment is a reflection of our relationship to society. In this episode, we revisit our conversation first recorded in late 2020 with Lauren Cardelli, the co-founder and executive director of A Growing Culture, which is a nonprofit advancing a culture of farmer autonomy and agroecological innovation. A Growing Culture is a farmer-centric organization that believes that the key to sustainability lies in returning small-scale farmers back to the forefront of agriculture. As part of this growing movement, Lauren and his colleagues promote farmer-led research, extension, and outreach, helping to create sustainable and self-driving futures. My personal journey is, I don't know, when somebody asks you about your personal journey and they want to find like the, the moment that the light bulb clicked and I always find myself pondering how far back do I want to go because there's always a series of events that led to it. And, you know, do we talk about our ancestors and the journeys that they took that were the stories that were told to us growing up that, that, that we held dear, that we somehow promised to carry on in their legacy? Do we, do we look at the difficulties and adversities that we had that shaped our, our way of thinking? Or do we look at those moments that that stand out, that would almost be a chapter of a biography or, you know. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll start with, I grew up not around agriculture. I grew up outside New York City, Westchester County. I, I grew up with two very dynamic and different food cultures. My father's Puerto Rican and my mother's Jewish. And food was woven into the stories was woven into our cultural experiences and behaviors, but it took me a while to understand how important that was. I grew up in a, in a hyper intellectual family, you know, one of six. And 
I grew up with some serious learning disabilities, the language disorder, a word retrieval issue, you know, ADHD, and a number of things that that led me to to a situation where I, I felt I needed to retreat from society. Initially, I pursued arts and, and creative media and music and because I couldn't find the words that I wanted to express myself. And I remember some of the most painful moments is being around that dinner table, around that food, where conversation was always flowing and, and having an opinion and a thought and not being able to express it. And as soon as I tried, my words wouldn't come out and I'd be paralyzed and my brother would jump on me and make fun of me. And I remember what it was like to, to feel silenced and unheard. And that was pretty painful. I carried that on for me for a while, unable to kind of relate in many ways. And my younger sister, who is a year younger, who's my best friend today, when she started high school, she was in ninth grade, I was in 10th, and she saw my kind of, I guess my, my loneliness, my frustration, you know, and she, she pulled me aside one day. I mean, I don't know how old you are in ninth grade, 13 or something. And, and she said, you know, we have to get you out of here. And in my mind, there was no other place. There's no other opportunity. We didn't, we weren't a family who boarding school or, or private school was ever an option. We didn't know anybody that, that did these things. And I told her that was crazy. And she told me that she was committed to, to seeing something better for me. So my sister confronted my parents and convinced them to, to find a way to get me out of there. And um, I really think of that as one of the moments that saved me. I went to a boarding school up in Vermont the next year and I milked cows at five in the mornings before class and you know, started to get connected to the environment. And that's where I realized how our relationship to the environment is really the epicenter of, of how we relate to each other and, and our world around us. I realized what it was like to live in a, in a, in a culture that was interwoven with ecology. And it was at that moment that I, I realized I didn't want to go to college. So I, I took some time off, deferred and saved up my money working at a hardware store in New York and got a one-way ticket to Latin America on my you know, 18th birthday, essentially, and got the fuck out of town and wanted to prove to the world that I was independent. And I ended up meeting somebody at a bar that first night named Sabala. 28-year-old, charming, Casanova-esque man who was wearing a purple bandana wrapped tight around his long hair. And I remember the moment that he saw me and met me. I was at a bar, one of the first times I could order a drink. I think it was the first time I could actually order a drink. I was just freshly 18 and outside of the United States. And I went to the bar and I, I asked for a beer and they looked at me and said, what kind? I said, what do you have? This dark and light, which is two bar, two kinds of beers in Belize. And I ordered the light and this hand slapped my shoulder and said, men don't drink light beer. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I said, okay, I'll take a dark beer. And it's at that moment that he wooed me into heading out into the jungle that night. 
we got in the back of a truck, we stopped and got some basic supplies and drove for hours into the Belizean night, the city, we left the city and it turned into country road, country road turned into dirt road, dirt road turned into logging road. And we finally ended up in this little village. It was about 2 a.m. No, no lights or anything, but like, and we dropped our stuff off. And he said, there's two hour walk from here into our camp. And somehow without a fear thought that I might get taken advantage or something, I kept going. We walked through the jungle that night and uh, ended up in this slash and burn camp where I lived with Sabala and this other indigenous man who was about 55 years old, I think, named Tiple. And the two of them trained me on how to live. We drank from the same stream that I bathed and washed my clothes in. We hunted our own meats. We grown our own food. We harvested wild foods. We built cabanas. They taught me how to shoot guns, how to run chainsaws, how to everything. And that relationship lasted multiple months. It transformed. Started off all like bush life 101. Started off like with this air of romanticism where I couldn't believe I felt like I was the luckiest person in the world learning from these folk and being immersed in culture and being able to like live off the land like a badass. And then a couple things happened. The first thing that happened was I hadn't been successful at raising, at hunting. So I went to the nearby community, which was that town that we had got dropped off at. And if you know anything about Belize, they don't speak Spanish there. During British control, they eradicated the, they outlawed the language. But this community that we worked at, that we lived near, which was two hours away, which was like our, like officially our closest neighbor, they only spoke Spanish. There was nobody who spoke English. So it just gives you understanding of how during colonial occupation that they never got that far into the bush and we were further. So I walked there with my machete, <clears throat> went to negotiate with the chicken farmer to bring back some chicken to cook for dinner. And I heard some screaming and I ran over there and I saw a young man, I guess my age around today. And he was holding his son in his arms. And I remember this, his son's body was pale, limp, and his son had died from drinking the pesticides that his father used on his farm. The father didn't label the pesticides. And the son thought that it was water. Now, it was at that moment that I realized how harmful industrial agriculture was. But like I realized something deeper, that the gateway to environmental erosion is cultural erosion. And that the very first step of the industrialization of our food system is to make culture obsolete. And so here we were so close, but yet so far away, learning how to live in the jungle, how to live off the land, how to grow sustainability and have like a surplus 
but yet so close away and but so far as well as like this little town that like didn't know the indigenous local knowledge because what they were connected to a logging road and what with that connection becomes middlemen and brokers and pushing down and you know agrochemicals down their throats and once that relationship starts it erodes libraries are lost elders are lost knowledge it's eroded and that is because that is the threat to industrial agriculture, is that local knowledge. That is the threat because it makes industrial agriculture obsolete. Farmers, unnamed scientists over millennia developing local varieties, local ways of growing. And when that's gone, we have no choice but industrial agriculture. So that's moment when I realized I wanted to create the nonprofit of grown culture. I wanted to work with farmers around the world and celebrate their knowledge and their ingenuity. But besides that, then, you know, I went back to the community shook and scared um, to, to the two farmers that I was living with. And something else changed me was that I realized that that relationship that they had with me was, it got more and more abusive. I did all the washing dishes, all the carrying water, all the washing clothes. At first I was excited just for any opportunity, but then the tone changed, the dynamic changed. Not with the elder, he was always grateful to me. And, but Sabala, who was about 26 or something, he started threatening me and scaring me and here i was stuck 18 years old you know in the in the bush and scared shitless he would scream and shout throw things at me he never hit me he raised his hand i was always scared that he would but i became kind of like i don't know what word to use but i became in service to them and to a way that was, wasn't an option or a choice. And then I started realizing that some of the trees that we were cutting and milling that I thought we were using to grow cabanas when I would be in the woods looking for, for hunting or, 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 or gathering materials, I noticed those piles were missing. So I figured out that they were selling wood on the black market. I realized that they were growing drugs and I realized that there was a legacy behind them that, that in a history that I didn't know. And so I started finding this out and I was scared. And one night the elder told me that I had to sneak out in the middle of the night if I wanted to be okay. And so I left, found my way to the logging road and hiked and hiked until I could, you know, hitchhike out of there. And I continued traveling for about four more months through multiple countries, through Latin America, working at different farms, meeting different communities. But that was a pretty influential moment in my life. Wow. What a story. What a personal journey this has been. I'm glad you got out of there okay. <laughs> and you came out founding this amazing nonprofit, A Growing Culture, in 2010. So 
I know with, through all these experiences, you, you're really dedicated to centering and supporting the struggles of smallholder farmers. So I would love to hear how you define smallholder farmers. And I do know that the majority of the farmers worldwide are smallholder farmers. But is this picture any different in the United States and in other industrialized countries where big agriculture dominates? When you work on a global scale, it's hard to to find the language that that works. Terms mean different things. Language doesn't always translate. And so even the word farmer is loaded. You know, when I founded this organization 10 years ago, you know, I thought farmer was pretty inclusive. But in the United States, we have a term that a lot of other places don't, which is the term like farm worker. Mm-hmm. You know, in a lot of the world, they don't have that term. They're farmers. They're farmers that are prevented from owning land, farmers that are pushed off land, but they're fucking farmers, you know? And then you have pastoralists, you have hunters and gatherers, you have fisher folk, you have all these people that are central to the peasant food web, but that don't consider themselves farmers. Right, so as an organization, it's hard sometimes because for every word we have to use, we have to unpack it and, 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 and almost unlearn to learn, right? And to build in a curriculum. We prefer the term peasant, but that is for a lot of folks triggering. And we want people to sit with that, to understand why that is. You did say that, that farmers, smallholder farmers produce the vast majority of the world's food. And that is true. Smallholder, indigenous, and peasant food producers only control 19% of agricultural land, yet produce over 70% of the world's food supply, protecting over 90% of agricultural biodiversity. They do that faced with unimaginable adversity. This is a population that is not white, right? You know, we, we think that farmers in the United States are white because we've created terms like farmer and farm worker to separate them, to divide. So one has power and one doesn't. But all over the world, you know, in the United States alone, it's estimated that 70 to 80% of the hands that touch your food are immigrant hands. And in a global context, it's probably, I don't know what you would estimate, but at least 98% of the hands that touch your food are not white. And those hands are, are feeding the world. They have less than a fifth of the agricultural land. They're faced with unimaginable adversity, you know, racial discrimination, gender discrimination, unfair market policies, lack of control, trade agreements that predate upon them, neoliberalism that that has puts them under attack every day of their lives, predatory seed laws, and yet they still manage to outproduce an industrial agriculture. So. I mean, it's important to imagine what they could do if we tipped the balance in their favor. If we removed those barriers and, 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 and struggles that we unfairly put upon them. But then we'd have to understand, well, what is agriculture? Agriculture is a 10,000-year-old knee on the neck of the ones who grow our food. Right? It's from the very first day with the founding of agriculture, the very sown were not seeds of barley, but seeds of Injustice, patriarchy, hierarchy, 
all of a sudden we had the haves and the have-nots. We had the rulers distributing the surplus, controlling the surplus, and the peasant class producing the surplus. Those who produced were not in control. Militaries were amassed, walls were built, laws were created to govern and to shape a system designed to oppress the very ones who grow our food. Imagine that. And we now know that the very first walls in Mesopotamia, uh, in Wangzi, right? Those walls were not built to keep outsiders out, but to keep peasants in. And what we look like today, the system that we look like, right? The, the climate change, the industrial prison system, the globalization, the patriarchy are all the fruits of those very first seeds sown. And that's the reality. We live in a world where a majority of the world's hungry are actually growing food. Whether you're in India or the United States, suicide rates amongst farmers are at alarming rates, alarming levels. So I guess the, the bold idea is to imagine a food system that nurtures the one who grows our food rather than exploits them. What really stands out to me from your organization is that your mission of realizing a sustainable food system is similar to the missions of many other organizations. It's just that you have so much embedded within this vision of a sustainable food system that often gets left out of the missions of other organizations. And you actually don't spend a lot of time talking about the more commonly heard things like agrochemicals, food waste the efficiency of the food system, soil health, and a lot of the more technical land practices in your advocacy. And rather, like you just highlighted, a lot of your work highlights conversations around power and justice. So I guess I'm curious what you think we miss out when our focus is just on the ecology aspect and what we're doing to the land and leaving out the power relations and power dynamics between people and the hierarchical structures that exist. You know, I think we all have a vision for a better food system, for a more sustainable food system. I guess what a growing culture believes is that the only way to do that is to address power. Is that the, our relationship to the environment is a reflection of our relationship to society. Until we dismantle these hierarchies, until we dismantle the injustices and the patriarchy, we will not have sustainability. And so it's really interesting. You look around the world of, of you know, let's just focus on the United States and all the, the organizations committed to, to changing our food system. 
I don't see them talking about power or injustice or privilege. I see them talking about soil carbon. I see them talking about chemicals and pesticides. I see them talking about why can't people just buy local food, vote with your fork. Consumer is, um, is the only way to change this world, right? And it's like, it's incredible because on our Hunger for Justice broadcast, you know, this year we started it at COVID time. We've had over a hundred presenters from Brazil to Philippines to New Zealand to all over the United States to Africa, Asia, everywhere. Indigenous smallholder, peasant farmers, activists. And a couple of weeks ago, I was thinking about what was the big takeaway. And, I, and, and it was crazy because not a single one of them advocated for composting. Not a single one of them talked about food waste. Not a single one of those communities talked about if we all bought this one brand, this one product. And, you know, and then when you go to these conferences, you know, I don't want to name names, but when you go in the United States to these regenerative or sustainable ag conferences, presentation after presentation is another white person presenting a solution that's going to solve the world. And that solution addresses everything. That solution can see the elephant in the savanna easier than the elephant in the room. It circumvents privilege. It doesn't address power. It's taboo. West Africa produces about 80% of the world's cacao, but gets less than 2% of the $100 billion revenue. Now I ask everyone listening, would making those farms regenerative and organic change a goddamn thing? That exploitation is still baked into the system. For every dollar of aid Africa gets, $24 is taken out. We have to address something deeper, something more systemic, but yet we don't want to talk about that. We want to talk about food waste. We want to talk about composting. These aren't the solutions. Those are treating the symptoms of the disease, not the root. You know, during our Juneteenth broadcast, Chris Newman of Savanaqua Farms, he, he, when he was finishing up his excellent like 45 minute monologue, which just covered the, the history of, of agriculture in the United States, which I think everybody should go and listen to. It's available on our YouTube channel. But he was asked, for a closing statement. And his closing statement said, they asked him, what should people take home with today? What was the last thing they should hear? And, and he said, after thinking for a second, if the world is to be saved, it's gonna be saved by BIPOC people. And I think there's a couple ways to interpret that. And I think, some of my own unpacking and learning has led me to realize that initially I thought I was wrong. I first, I, I listened to it and I, I said, that makes sense. You know, the, the adversity that's been dealt to these communities allows them to see things differently. You know, adversity breeds ingenuity. And that's, that's what he meant. But I realized that that in its own way, in its own way was flawed in its own way was, you know, racist. I had to think deeper. And when you look at indigenous communities all around the world, there's a sense of animism. 
There's a common thread of that, a different way of relating, different way of seeing, a different way of being. They look at the rivers as kin, the animals as kin. And personally, I think what he meant was that if we are to be saved in this world, it's going to be adopting another way of relating to this world, another way of engaging with nature, with brother and sister and humanity. There's another way out there. And the problem with the industrial agriculture is problem with monoculture doesn't allow freedom of choice. It doesn't allow diversity. It doesn't allow other ideas. Perhaps to add to this, I was recently speaking with two Afro-Indigenous farmers who shared similar concerns to do with their struggles with maybe local officials there in Kenya and Ghana or organizations from the outside coming in to encourage them to adopt the Western forms of quote-unquote ecological agriculture that are really just limited versions of the indigenous forms of agriculture that they had been practicing, but transformed into a more extractive approach to fit the global economy and the global market. But that leaves out, like you said, the deeper worldviews of how they relate to the lands and to all beings. And these relationships that are just completely erased in how we place value on things in this globalized economy. And for example, to many of their communities, seeds are actually not for sale because they're sacred to their communities as a part of how they build relationships to one another and to the land. So I'm curious, you know, with your work with communities all over the world, smallholder food producers all over the world, do you see similar trends happening where there are sort of these outside forces, oftentimes Western Western organizations that have good intentions of wanting to help improve what's going on around the world, but really going in to offer limited sets of solutions that actually detract from the localized indigenous and place-based knowledge that people had already been embodying and practicing? Yeah, <laughs> that's development, isn't it? It's like... Quote-unquote advancement. <laughs> yeah. It's the, I mean, that's like such a hard dynamic there. I mean, it's like, it's like I've been all around the world. I've worked in multiple countries and I'm hard pressed to find a model that actually did good. I mean, good intent doesn't, doesn't mean a damn thing anymore. There's a proselytization, a missionary-esque model of development that, that pushes So often, even these green NGOs are, are, are founded on the same premise of the Green Revolution. They're repackaged, rebranded, right? It's like that we need more calories to, or, you know, that, that hunger is the result of not enough food. And that through increasing production, we get the eradication of hunger, which is just bogus. Right now, we produce enough food for about 1.5 times the population, yet one point two billion still go to bed hungry that you know the math doesn't work without injustice in the equation mm. it's not about the amount of food produced it's about the amount of food delivered and access i've seen it 
all over the world, NGOs pushing these models. You know, the vast majority of them are backed by industrial agriculture. You know, One Acre Fund, which was awarded the audacious project, which was the most audacious and bold idea or whatever a few years ago. You know, they 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 push seed and and fertilizer input packages on farmers. They tell farmers exactly how to farm. You know, farmer gets maybe a better yield the first year, but gets stuck into a model of agriculture. Farmer doesn't have autonomy over their their practice. There's a a number of stories, you know, that I can share around the world where where I saw development treating farmers as simply beneficiaries of aid rather than active innovators. It's disgusting. There's models of white saviorism, there's models of top-down extensionalism, and it really breaks my heart because those communities are not only land defenders, they're not only defenders of sacred biodiversity, but they're active innovators and problem solvers and solution generators. And if we are to feed the world, if we are to to have a, a sustainable or quote unquote regenerative future, then it's going to be based on the knowledge and ideas of these people. And you know, when I push programs to 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 funders to try to get capital to these grassroots communities, you know, they want to see how much soil carbon is being added, how much yield is being increased when. Personally, I don't really care about that. Give me a metric for the de-objectification of the ones who grow our food. Give me a metric for cultivating agency and resilience in the face of, of neoliberalism. That's what we care about, is unlocking that potential for the betterment of us all. And you're right, like seed savers all around the world, they understand that seed is not owned by an individual. It's our collective ancestry. It's our collective right. They understand that you can't trace the owner of that seed because it's been adapted over millennia by unnamed scientists, aka farmers, who are adopting these varieties to, to, to mitigate the natural, ecological, and social issues of the world. You know, last year, around this time, I was in Uganda working with some seed savers, these women seed savers, and this woman walked me to the back of her house. She showed me this field of ground nuts, just peanuts. It's a beautiful field. She's like, it hasn't been raining much, but look how strong this crop is. It's drought resistant. It was beautiful. And she told me that over 20 years ago, when Joseph Coney a warlord was cutting off the nose, lips, ears of women and children, using child soldiers, terrorizing communities up and down northern Uganda. The government could not keep, the government could not fight back. So what they did was move all these people into local internment camps, local like refugee camps, but for people that never had to leave their country. And she told me that she had a moment's notice before she left her house. And she had to grab her family heirlooms. And what did she grab was those seeds. And so 
every year for over 20 years at the edge of that camp, she'd plant this seed just to keep it alive. Every year, she'd make sure that that family heirloom was staying alive because it was sacred. It was the most valuable possession to her family. And today, she has a field of it. You don't patent that. You don't hoard that. Seed is the DNA of our culture. It weaves together the fabric of our society. That really illustrates a huge problem with our economic system is that through the way that it places value, monetary value on things, there's so many things that are not captured in that value. It just leaves out so much that it turns everything transactional. And I think overall it leads to the degradation of our collective health because our health is not just reliant on monetary value. There are so many other forms of wealth and riches that we need in order to survive and thrive. So this really speaks beautifully to that. And I'm actually very curious about the work that you do on the grounds because you work around the globe with smallholder food producers in different countries and regions that have, you know, people that have to navigate different local politics, regulations and laws and their own sets of struggles that vary from place to place. So with so many variables, how do you approach supporting these food producers in their own unique struggles and causes? Yeah, by regularly, like by by recognizing that last part, right, <laughs> which is that everywhere is different. Everywhere needs something different. There's local nuance and context baked into every approach. We're not a one size fits all organization. And and so many of the nonprofits that exist in the world, they're 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 designed to champion this 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 one size fits all, this silver bullet and 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 talk about scaling up, right? We we don't we're not into that. We we believe in scaling out more than scaling up and scaling out is scaling out the agency and resilience of farming communities. So the way we work with these communities is is threefold. We we raise capital to bring to the hands of, of grassroots groups so that they can um, problem solve, they can innovate, they can drive solutions and, and incubate ideas. We try to make that as untethered as possible. The second thing we do is connect groups around the world. Farmers in Madagascar need to farm, learn from farmers in Mongolia who are learning from farmers in Bolivia. The revolution might not be televised, but it will be open source. And it's time to collectivize that innovation and democratize that information. And so we've built a digital knowledge sharing platforms that is called the Library for Food Sovereignty. It's uh, governed by the community that it was designed for. And it holds the stories, the ideas, the innovations, the successes, the failures and case studies of the grassroots population. We connect producers and activists through digital or analog ways, but we understand that this struggle is is global and that solidarity is and has to be a part of that. And the third part, the way that we work is communications. To learn, we must unlearn. We must 
decenter ourselves and center the peasant food web, the community that, you know, faced with unimaginable adversity gives birth to unbridled ingenuity. That community that's out producing industrial ag needs to be centered and celebrated. And we fight for that and we do that. So all of our programs kind of involve pieces of each of them. And so in Philippines, where our partners are being faced with a murderous dictator who kills a farmer every four days, we're working on advocating for their rights, their right to land, their right to stand up. We're putting pressure with letters to the UN to stand up to this murderous dictator. In Tanzania, we work with someone in Nigeria in the Maasai of Loliondo fighting back against an unfair land grab led by an ecotourism company in Boston who celebrates their outreach to the Maasai community but are involved in a land grab pushing out the homes. Samwell has been arrested 15 times. He's been shot. He's been tortured in jail fighting for his ancestral land. So we work with them to do storytelling. We've sponsored... Uh, you know, programs to so that the community could do participatory video and advocacy work. We've gotten them equipment, support, so that they can film their story. They can tell their story. In India, we work with the Baldev, who's, you know, in India in 1970, there was 110,000 varieties of indigenous rice grown. Today, less than 6,000. The Baldev has saved 1,500 of those varieties, and he grows every single variety every year. Because seed libraries are living. They're not something you put in a freezer. They don't belong in a morgue. Every year, these varieties have to adapt and become resilient to those conditions. So if they're drought tolerant, they have to be raised under drought you know, circumstances. They, if, they're, if they're flood tolerant, you raise them in flood. Like you have to create this to build that resiliency. And DeBall does that on land that he leases and rents. Like this is not like, and so I think, he has like something like a few acres of land that he cultivates 1,500 varieties on. And I think the International Rice Research Institute says there needs to be 60 meters or something apart for each variety to maintain genetic integrity. If, if DeBall put that spacing, it would take up the whole state. But yet industrial agriculture doesn't understand the very basic understanding of how these systems work. Tabal laughs at that. And he says, you're talking about geographic spacing. And he looks at temporal spacing. He knows when those rice varieties are open for pollination and when they're not. He knows their pollinating windows. And he comes up with a plan every year, a planting pattern that protects them by circling them with with, with varieties that are not the same window of pollination. And he's able to pack these varieties real tight to be able to preserve them. But what he does most importantly is he enters all those varieties into the commons. None of them can be patented, none of them are owned. He never charges a damn thing for those varieties. He has a pay it forward model where any farmer anywhere can come and get those varieties. He gives them a kilo of seed, the next year they have to bring a kilo back or give it to another farmer. This is the system. So 
What I'm saying is that everywhere we work, it's something different. In East Africa, we're supporting women farmers to innovate, looking at the intersection between climate change mitigation and gender equality. Combating the narrative that people that look like me have the solutions to climate change. You're not gonna find those solutions in Silicon Valley, Iowa State, or Cornell. You're not gonna find them in Wall Street. You're gonna find them in the communities that have already been dealing with these issues, that have created unbelievable models for growing food. Those are the true disruptive technologies needed. And so what we do is we are a movement support organization. When we partner with you, we partner with you. We in their trenches with you, we work alongside you. And when they call and say, we need help with the campaign, when they call and say, we need support advancing this innovation, this workshop, we need call help doing agroecology trainings, we need call doing communications, we respond and are there for them. Because the work is about being in service to the ones you work to. And nonprofit after nonprofit forget that. They forget that. It takes time to build this trust and respect, to build that mutual love and admiration. It takes time. And we've spent the last 10 years doing that. And so our partners know that when they need us, we're stand with them. And we know that that looks different, every application, because we know there's no one size fits all. The one size fits all is industrial agriculture. That linear extractive way of looking isn't going to, like, we're not going to give birth to the, to the solution using that same framework. Every community is different. You, when you grow food, you know your neighbor's farm is different than yours. So we're open to that. And we work in any way we can in support of the ones who grow our food with the bold and audacious idea that together we cultivate a world that actually nurtures the ones who grow our food rather than exploits them. And that is the only future of sustainability in my mind. I, like you also, don't believe it's possible for us to achieve a sustainable food system by swapping this practice with that practice without addressing our relationships with the earth and to one another. Because it's ultimately all connected and sustainability has to address this power piece and support the decentralization of power within the food system to really center the very hands and the people and the voices out there on the front lines growing our food. So I'm very much with you on this and I'm just very touched and inspired by everything that you guys are working on and I really hope our listener will continue to follow you and donate if they can and support the work that you're doing. So I would love for you to share any calls to action you have in terms of how they can best support a growing culture and this future of food that you speak to. Yeah, I mean, that's the the challenge is the like, we're not good at asking for donations. We're not good at pushing ourselves. Our organization does a really like really strives to decenter ourselves. It'd be hard to get a lot of the people that work with this organization. You know, we're, we're grassroots activists around the world, and it'd be hard to get a lot of them to even want to do podcasts or speak out um, in this kind of way because we love the work and we love championing the ones who actually have 
their hands in the soil, right? <laughs> so many of these organizations have these talking heads that, you know, are, are the founders and the leaders that, that consider themselves experts in agriculture, but have never fucking farmed. Mm. And that's like the sickness of our society, which we think that's even acceptable, right? <laughs> like a leading regenerative expert, give me a break. So we do have a hard time. You know, our, we have a hard time with raising money and with funding our programs. So if there's people out there that, that this resonates with, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, at growingculture.org. If you can, donate. If you can, donate monthly a small amount, a latte or whatever, you know, like think about what the equivalent is because, you know, like your subscriptions to Netflix and Amazon and, 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 and Spotify don't, don't support farmers, you know? We do. And we work for them and we work alongside them. And we're pushing for something different here. So if, if, if anybody out there who resonates, you know, reach out, email me at warren at a growing culture.org, call me, you know, reach out to our, to our team, send us direct messages. Like, like we are here to work with you because the world's most renewable resource is collaboration. We must do this together. We must learn that, that we need to give credit where credit is due. You know, Kamea, we've been in conversations with about recognizing indigenous knowledge, <laughs> looking at regenerative and sustainability as, as a, almost appropriations of this, these terminology, looking at the organizations and the movements that come out around this that don't give credit. Like the first thing I can ask any of you, the call to action is to name it, recognize that the peasant food web is outproducing industrial agriculture, recognize that that is majority BIPOC individuals, recognize and celebrate their ingenuity and their contribution, recognize that when you're eating, it's because of them. And the second thing I ask you, the most important thing, more than supporting us, more than following us, is ask these questions. If you look at an article, if you go to a conference and talking about our food system, if you're looking at a nonprofit and a solution, ask if it addresses the very inequity that plagues our food system. Ask if it addresses power. Ask who is centered. Does it democratize production, right? Like, because we live in a food system that produces calories, not nutrition, that consolidates control, not democratizes production and that protects the bottom line, not the bottom billion. The only way to address this is to be bold enough to fight for the ones you don't know. Fight to restore power in their hands and to have that like faith and that optimism that that community can design a food system better than we can. So please don't share articles don't email them to my mother who then forwards them to me. <laughs> don't, don't, don't tweet them. Don't go to conferences. Don't, don't be part of solutions. Don't champion them that don't recognize power struggles and power dynamics and don't return the power into the ones who grow our food, please. That's the biggest call to action I can ask. I see love everywhere I go. I see more
What is an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? <laughs> Shit. <laughs> uplifting. <laughs> People that know me don't know much uplifting shit. Oh, man, that's really got me there. <laughs> or just things um, that are really profound for you. Pedagogy of the Oppressed is, is the most important book I've ever read by Paolo Freire. What is it that keeps you going? So what keeps you motivated in this work? When you do this work, you're, 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 you're not cultivating relationships. You're not networking. You're not creating friendships. You're extending your family. Through this work in the last 10 years, I've cultivated a family around the world, you know, and, and Kamea, you've met some of them now, you know, um, and those people check you when you need to be checked. They challenge you when you need to be challenged. They lift you up when you need to be lifted up. You're responsible to them and them to you. And that's love. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? What makes me hopeful, I guess, is that that I think we all hunger for something. I think in our society right now, we're, we know that there's a void in us. And if we're not hungry for food, we're hungry for justice. And I think until every last one of us hungers no more, that we need to lean into hungering for justice. And I see that in the youth. I see that their ability to to want change so bad. So I'm hoping that we can do this together. Mm. Well, we are coming to a close, but again, it is a growingculture.org where you can learn more about Lauren's work and the nonprofit's work. And most importantly, the way the ways that they're really scaling out and not necessarily scaling up a certain one size fits all solution. I think that is really key. And then you can also follow them on Instagram and Facebook at A Growing Culture and on Twitter at AGC Connect. Lauren, thank you so much for joining me on the show and for this really important work and for your dedication. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep fighting. You know, like we get we get so lost that there's not a solution right, that we get lost, that there's not an easy fix to anything. We get overwhelmed with all this truth and, but know that our change will be collective and that the more people we can bring together, the more we can imagine a world that's different, the more we can make happen. So I, I applaud everyone who's, who's committed to the process of unlearning and the process of learning. I hope that, that we can stand in solidarity. Green Dreamer, we've come full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song feature is Only the Truth by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will catch you in the next episode.